0: God's Word in Acts chapter 4. We'll be reading a portion in chapter 4 and then in chapter 5. Chapter 4 is a portion we've considered before. It follows the healing of that lame man and then the preaching, the explanation of what happened by Peter. But then it followed in the arrest of Peter and John. And that was the first persecution of the church. We'll just read a few verses of of the account of the persecution and we will read then chapter 5 and we're having these two persecutions before us in parallel. So chapter 4 beginning in verse 5. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priests, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means a fulfillment of an Isaac who is offered as a sacrifice by a loving father obeying God, putting him on the altar but then receiving him back as if from the dead. Isaac are before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took notice knowledge of them that they had been with jesus and beholding the man which was healed standing with them they could say nothing against it and what followed was the threat that they made that they would were to not preach anymore in the name of jesus but they went right To the church, to the other disciples, they prayed. It was after that prayer that the earth even shook um, under them. The believers are accounted in chapter 4 still, verse 32, of the great ministry of love they had where they were sharing of their needs to help others. Chapter 5 gave that example, that sad example of Ananias and Sapphira. All was not perfect in the church. There were those who were hypocrites, who were proud, who were very likely unbelievers, but inside the the realm of the church. But then what followed was a little account, how they kept on doing miracles, and, and how signs and wonders were wrought. And in verse 16 of chapter 5, we continue reading. Chapter 5, now verse 16. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem, "...bringing sick folks, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors, and brought them forth, and said, Go! Stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison... They returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keeper standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. This means they were perplexed. They were puzzled. They were at a loss. In verse 25. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the man whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, "'Did not we straightly command you "'that you should not teach in this name? "'And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine "'and intend to bring this man's blood upon us.' Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, "'We ought to obey God rather than men. "'The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, "'whom ye slew and hanged on a tree.' Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior. The are going through the multitude, getting out of that basket. There is bread and fish multiplying by the thousands. Again, wouldn't that have occasioned the second great conference? They were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Thus far, for this evening in the reading of God's Word. Dear congregation, these portions that we have read shortly are the very first persecution of the Christian church. And when we and now i'm sure you would agree with me that the greatest preparation would be to know first of all if we are true believers are you truly born again upper and now i'm sure you would agree with me that the greatest preparation would be to know first of all if we are true believers are you truly born again And you begin to answer this question through the question of faith. Do you have true faith? When you are asked, are you truly a believer? That is, in essence, what is being asked. Do you have true faith? We can always consider, of course, other marks of faith and other marks of Christianity. But we cannot consider them until we consider this first one. This is the first mark of a true believer. He believes. A true believer is a man of faith, a woman of faith, a child of faith. And If you don't, and even through this sermon, if you are convicted that you do not have true faith... I do not want you to reach the conclusion... Well, therefore, I cannot partake. If you are someone who has professed your faith before... And the sermon convicts you... And you come to believe you do not have faith... God's word... This is not my um, counsel to you. God's word would not put upon you this conclusion... Therefore, do not partake. The conclusion is, if you don't believe believe if you don't have faith God's words conclusion is you must have faith now of course there's a distinction if you're someone who's never professed your faith I'm not saying well if today you have faith then next Lord's Day you can partake well if you are convicted and you believe and have true faith then you will one day shortly hopefully profess this faith publicly And then partake from there on. But you need to understand that the Lord's Supper never stands as as an emblem of stay far until something happens. It is always an invitation. It is an invitation to come. It is not putting you far. It is inviting you near. But you can only come near if you truly believe. We read this morning the form that it, there's a danger to come and to sit if you have not discerned the body, if you have no true faith in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't truly believe in who Jesus is, there's a danger to partake because you bring condemnation to yourself. It is a sin. You cannot profess that you commune with Christ if you do not believe in Christ. It's what we've been seeing about communion. There is no communion without union. So you cannot come to a sacrament where you're professing communion if in your heart you have no union in Christ. But but again, the conclusion is not, well, just stay away. No, the conclusion is, then you must be in union. You must believe. And even as we hope to see these two sets of persecution and how they teach us what, what the opposite of faith is, You will see, it is a conclusion that God's Word gives. Do not stay in unbelief. There is an utter folly if you stay in unbelief. And and I'll go further. There's an unreasonableness to stay in unbelief. There is an utter illogical reality of stance of unbelief. And you will see this as we go through these passages. And... What do people do when they are convicted that they are being foolish or that they are illogical, that they are unreasonable, that they are unloving? The conclusion is, well then, be reasonable, be logical, be wise. And this is what God's Word is saying to all peoples everywhere. You see how unwise these men were being as they are are speaking to the apostles but the apostles are never saying, you, you Sadducees, there's no hope for you. We have no more qualms with you. We will no longer talk to you. No, this, this is what I'm meaning. Look, what, look at Peter. He is saying, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be Prince and Savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. What is the conclusion? Peter's not saying, Sadducees, there's no hope for you. Peter is saying, Sadducees, be reasonable and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This forgiveness of sins and salvation is for Israel. The Sadducees were part of Israel. Peter is giving hope to these very men who are persecuting him. And it's, it's the same dynamic. See, we're having the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day and you must have faith to partake. But if you find out you have no faith, God's Word is saying you must believe then and then come. You must believe then and profess publicly and then come. Well, let us learn the nature of persecution first. Very short first point. A big bulk of the second point. And more like a conclusion in our third point. So first of all, the nature of persecution. And what we hope to see here is that persecution helps us understand what faith really is. And this is what I mean. What was the reason of this persecution? The first one. And the second one. Why did these Jewish leaders persecute this band of believers? First, Peter and John. And they were arrested. And then all of the apostles and they were arrested. Why? why? Why did they do this? What was the reason of the first and the second persecution? Well, we, we must conclude it was a response of unbelief. They, they did not believe the message of Christ. And so they were persecuting the messengers of Christ. Faith embraces the God revealed in Scripture. And what does persecution do? It rejects Him. Faith embraces the Messiah. Persecution crucifies Him. Faith embraces all of the messengers of God. What does persecution do? It it pursues them and puts them behind bars. So this persecution is a rejection. This crucifying This pursuing the messengers is unbelief. We we should all agree with that. It's nothing but unbelief. It, It also opens our eyes to see unbelief is not a neutral stance to the gospel. It is a defiant stance to the gospel. Now, if we put all of this together, all of this persecution, the forsaking... Of Christ, letting Him go to the cross, ignoring Him when He was on the cross, mocking Him, penalizing Him, arresting Him, imprisoning Him. Now the apostles who bear His message, they will be put in prison as well. This torturing. Christ was tortured. He was scourged. And the apostles, they were only let go on the second time. We, we haven't even gotten there yet at the very end of that second persecution. But they will be scourged. What all of that has in common is one word. Not just unbelief, but the word rejection. Let me go to our second point. The nature of unbelief. This leads us directly to this. What is unbelief? Unbelief, beloved, if we could define unbelief with one word, it is the word rejection. You see, not all the persecution was mocking. It doesn't seem like there's been a lot of mocking for these apostles as of yet. There's been imprisonment. In the first imprisonment, there wasn't scourging. So not all persecution is, is torture. Not all persecution is even imprisonment. There will be many times still that they will be persecuted and not be put in prison. All persecution is rejection. Rejection is, in a sense, the bottom line. Because they reject, they pursue. And in a, in a simple definition of persecution is a pursuit. If you look up the word persecution in Greek, it is the word pursue. They went after them. See, in going after them, they put them in prison. And then they left prison, they go after them again. And they're just pursuing them. They're running after them. That's persecution. And why? Because they reject them. And so we, we have an equation. And, and it's interesting how in grammar, in God's words, so many places this is done. It's, you envision a mathematical equation in grammar, grammatical ways, and this is literally what we have. It's a very logical pattern. You have this, persecution is unbelief. You would never persecute anyone if you have faith. If you, if you believe in what they're preaching, you will not persecute them. Right, But if you don't believe, you will. Persecution equals unbelief. But we also see that persecution equals rejection. Because they were rejecting the apostles. They were rejecting the Jesus that they had crucified. It's rejection. Those are words that help summarize. And so if persecution is unbelief and persecution is rejection, we can very authoritatively say that unbelief is rejection. That's what unbelief is. It is rejection. And then to help us understand this and see we're not inventing things because, see, I have unbelieving friends and it sounds quite harsh to say he's a rejecter. But do we have authority from God's Word to say this? We do. Let's, Let's go to God's Word. What were these religious leaders doing? They were rejecting. And they were... Not believing, and in the first persecution in the first imprisonment, if you go to chapter four um, verse ten, this is what paul what Peter does. After he declares to them that he's doing this through the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth in verse 10. Whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Look at verse 11. He's bringing here a prophecy from the Old Testament and he's applying it to them. He said, The stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner." This is who Jesus is. He is the stone, and you who are the builders have rejected. And set at naught means despised. It means to disdain. It means to reject. When 1 Peter two four is relating to this very passage, we read, "...to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious." Disallowed means disapproved. It means rejected. This is from Psalm 118, verse 22. We sang this song. The stone which the builders refused in the Old Testament is become the head stone of the corner. The word refuse, the word disapprove is very helpful because of the figure that we have here. Boys and girls, here is an illustration God is putting in the Bible. I, I, I do believe it's meant especially for boys and girls. But then it's really teaching that all of us have the heart and the mind of of little children because we all need pictures. And... As soon as we have this from Psalm eighteen, it is carried on into into Acts, and then later First Peter, referring to Jesus as a stone that was refused. What brings to our mind, and boys and girls and young people, this is the illustration you ha- should have in your mind, and envision yourself there in the in the quarries of Israel, wherever they find the granite that is necessary for the foundations and the buildings to be built. And in the midst of all that quarryness, all the smoke and all the rocks that fly everywhere as they are chipping through and making this, these giant blocks, there are some that the masons have prepared, but they're waiting for the master builders who will come and examine each one because the ones that are to be in the corner have to be pristine. They can have no flaws and They have worked on them. Some men are less experienced. They're not the ones to make any kind of judgment. Some of, some of those workers probably have enough judgment where they have already disqualified a few, but they worked on some, but now the master builders come and they're going to give their last approval or disapproval. And depending on how gigantic is the building they're planning, they know how strong and pure that cornerstone must be. And if upon their examination they see what well, you can envision, those veins that may be on a marble counter in a kitchen may look beautiful, but it would be devastating to a building that would be massively giant. And that cornerstone, when it receives the pressure and the tension, would scatter, would, would completely destroy, and the building would collapse. So what do those master builders do, those engineers of the old Days they would study the stone, and if they found a flaw that was significant, they would disapprove it. they would disallow it, they would set it at naught. they would say, "No, we can't use it that's the picture that's what that verse refers to, and God is making use of that picture and making us think of Jesus as this cornerstone, and these very men, and this is why I believe the Bible has this, this, it's meaning to show. It's not just one person or another. Look at chapter four, five. There are the rulers and the elders and the scribes and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of a kindred of the high priest. they're, they're gathered together. These are the master builders. These are the ones who, who could evaluate the prophecies. They knew the qualifications of the Messiah so that when the Messiah would come, they could study and they could find and they could, they could ask questions. Where was He born? Is He of the line of David? Was He born of a virgin? Is He of Bethlehem? They should have known. These were the master builders. And the building to be built would be the most massive and majestic building. It would be the Messiah's building, the temple of God. And when they saw Jesus, they said, no, crucify Him. And remember, there's this added drama to the the whole figure because in those days, a stone that would have that impurity, you wouldn't just throw it away. It was massively expensive to get that done. You would put that in the very middle of the building, maybe the foundation that really wouldn't matter. If it broke, it wouldn't matter. It would be encircled by other rocks. It would keep the structure there. So all the impurity rocks, they would make use of it. They would put them here and there wherever it would be okay. But what did they do with Jesus? He wasn't even good for that. Jesus wasn't good to be a Sabbath school teacher in Israel. He wasn't good to be even the doorkeeper of the temple. He wasn't good to be the least of the Pharisees. He wasn't good to be even the least of the Sadducees. Just crucify Him. That's what... Peter is saying, "This is the stone which was rejected of you builders. And beloved, this is what must be stark before us. What, what is God's Word teaching us? Unbelief is rejection. It is a heart seeing Jesus and saying no. Now before we, we go to Jesus Himself, let's, let's go through a lineup of what are they rejecting? What are unbelievers rejecting when they reject the gospel, when re- they reject Jesus? It, it really helps us to think little by little. A couple sermons that I've read and studied of Martin Lloyd-Jones really helps in understanding this. It's very, very convicting when we think of what unbelief rejects. Especially when we're thinking of these very persecutions. You see they are both rejecting... What are they rejecting? At face value, they're rejecting Peter and John. Later, they're rejecting the apostles. The apostles make reference to Jesus. Then we conclude they're rejecting Jesus. But let's begin with the prophecies of God. That's the first thing they're rejecting. They're rejecting all of the prophecies that God gave to them. Because they were the manual they had to look upon a stone and decide if that would be the Messiah that was supposed to be approved of you builders. And it was the prophecies that really gave them the indication and the the clear mandate as to who was to be accepted as the Messiah. Now, I don't start by saying they rejected God. Why? Why? Because not all persecution begins there. And perhaps most persecution in terms of church history has begun with people who at least in their hearts are actually thinking they're rendering a service to God and yet they are persecuting those who love God. Jesus even predicted that this would happen. In John sixteen two, it says, They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. So they're not actively rejecting God, but they're rejecting the prophecies of God. And of course, indirectly, they are rejecting God, only they're not aware of it. And the supreme example we have is Apostle Paul. He was not rejecting in his heart, he was not rejecting God. The reason he went after the church is he thought it was truly a, a, a heretical sect, and he thought it had to be dealt with harshly. And in his zeal for God, he persecuted Christ. And this shows the great danger of religious unbelief. See, not all unbelievers are atheists. Many are religious. Paul was one. These very leaders, these rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest, they were all um, believers in that sense, that general sense of the word. They, They were all religious people. They weren't atheists. They weren't actively rejecting God, but because of their unbelief, they were rejecting God. They just didn't understand it. They didn't know it. What were the prophecies that they were rejecting? Well, in essence, every single one of them. We don't know which scribe knew what about Jesus, which Pharisee, which Sadducee knew all the details. But we can conclude that a great number of them knew a great deal about Jesus. Maybe some knew more. We're going to get to the passage where Gamaliel will speak. And it clearly indicates that he knew more. And it indicates that many of the Pharisees. Would have had more elucidation about who Jesus was. And the danger of rejecting him. Because we will will act the very next portion. We find Gamaliel and he's afraid. Of continuing in this rejection. There's a fear of God in his heart. But what were the. The prophecies. Well, they they were rejecting the prophecy that he would be born of a virgin, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was of the seed of David, by not accepting Christ. They were rejecting all of these. They were rejecting the prophecies that there would be the slaughter of children in Jeremiah thirty one, fifteen, his flight into Egypt that he fulfilled, Hosea 11.1. 1. that he would have someone to prepare his way. Jesus fit that prophecy, Isaiah forty, three through five. Then there were the prophecies of his very ministry. This is what they would have known more of. That he was one who began with a Galilean ministry. That was Isaiah 9. That he would speak in parables. That was a prophecy in Psalm 78. That he would minister to the lowly and hurting people. They knew that because they they accused him of doing that. Isaiah 61. Also that he would be rejected of men in his ministry. This This is the astonishing thing. The very men who were rejecting Jesus should have thought, wait brother, our very rejection qualifies him as a Messiah. Because Isaiah 53 said that's what would happen. And even as he's rejected of men, he would be praised by infants. Psalm 8. And remember, they told Jesus, make those children stop. They knew that children were praising Jesus. They knew Psalm 8 was being fulfilled. And when was that? Right after the triumphal entry. And that's Zechariah 9.9. So put all that together. Here are the men rejecting Jesus, telling the little children to stop. And it's during the triumphal entry. There was Zechariah 9, there was Isaiah 53, and Psalm 8 being played out right there in plain view before the face of Jerusalem. Then he's betrayed by a friend. And certainly those leaders knew about that because they're the ones who gave the money. Psalm 41, And beloved, think of this. Imagine the scribe counting out 30 pieces of silver. And could it gone, have gone through his mind? Zechariah eleven twelve 12. That gave the exact money. They were rejecting all of those prophecies. They were rejecting the prophecies that they would accuse him falsely. That he would be silent while they did it. That they would strike him with the hand and spit him with their spittle. That he would be hated without a reason. Any one of those men could have stopped and think, wait, why are we crucifying this Jesus? Because he, he fed 5,000 people? And because he walked on water? And gave sight to the blind? Is there a reason? They were rejecting all those prophecies. They were rejecting the prophecies surrounding his suffering. That in many ways, that is the bulk of the prophecies. That he would be pierced through hands and feet, Zechariah 12:10. That they were um, that, that, that he would be there while the the soldiers would be gambling for His clothing. Psalm 22, and perhaps, beloved, the most illuminating moment that in a way, if you think of Old Testament Scripture, Psalm 22, and how well they knew it, that moment of darkness on the cross was in a sense the brightest light whereby all of the devout Jews, if they were to have a moment of reason, they would have wept And they would have mourned and wondered. Because in that darkness they heard Psalm 22, 1 in the original. The voice of the one who inspired Peter, David to pen it down. When Christ cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And beloved, it's that very Psalm 22 that speaks of the parting of His garments and that none of His bones would be broken and that He would be surrounded by bulls of Bashan and dogs compassing Him and lions roaring. And any one of those thugs could have thought, we are the bulls. We are the dogs. We are the ones roaring against the One who is innocent and who is being hated without a cause. There He is, pierced. There He is crying out, Psalm 22. I just saw the garment. Being torn a few moments, and they were gambling for it. They had prophecy right before them, being lived out. It wasn't a video, it wasn't a recording, it was live prophecy. And they rejected it. Then they heard of his resurrection, and they could have remembered Psalm 16:10. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Could they think there would have been a holier man than Jesus? They saw Him on the cross. They saw Him praying for those who hurt Him. Praying for forgiveness. Beloved, that is what unbelief does. It, It rejects the prophecies. Now it also rejects all of the types and figures that God gave. Because again, beloved, what you need to put into the whole equation is this. We're not talking, in essence, about the populace and people who perhaps wouldn't know the Scripture as much as these leaders were supposed to know. A lot of these scribes, it meant that they copied and copied and copied the Old Testament their whole lives. They knew it. They knew Psalm 22.1. They knew about the garments. They knew about the piercing. And they rejected it. But then there are the types and figures. And they knew those too. What do I mean? They could have seen in Jesus a fulfillment of an Isaac who was offered as a sacrifice by a loving father Obeying God, putting Him on the altar, but then receiving Him back as if from the dead. Isaac was a picture of Jesus when that happened. He was preparing the people to think of who the Messiah would be, but they rejected that. They they could have seen Him, the Lord Jesus, in the daily manna that was given in the wilderness and in the rock which came forth from water. Couldn't one of them remember? He did say that He is the bread of life. One of them may be heard from one and from the other where he offered living water for that lady at the well. They could have seen him in Jonah as he was three days in the belly of the fish. And as the waves and billows came over his head and came forth alive as from the grave. Jesus told them he would give the sign of Jonah. And in three days he came out of the grave. They could have seen him in Judah. Remember, boys and girls, when when Judah offered his own life to be a slave to Pharaoh so long as Benjamin could go back free. He was giving his life to save the life of his brother. He was a picture of Jesus then. They could have seen him in every innocent lamb and goat ox and turtle dove Israel their whole entire lives knew that was a sacramental system the sacrificial system that's how we worship God these poor little animals they have nothing to do with my lies with my thefts I'm the one who disobeyed mom I'm the one who disobeyed dad I'm the one who has not loved my wife as I should I'm the one who has not worshipped God perfectly this little lamb has to die and it was a picture of Jesus to them it was a picture of the Messiah As he's there on the cross shedding his blood. He was fulfilling all these pictures. All those sacrificial victims. And what did they do? They set all of those at naught. They were rejecting it all. Then three. They were of course rejecting The Messiah of God. This is of course in a sense the apex of their rejection. And it doesn't stop there. There's a few more to go. Because it's all connected. They were rejecting the very Messiah that God promised. This is the greatest promise. The greatest prophecy. By rejecting them all. They rejected of course what it all pointed to. What they all were in fulfillment of, which was Christ himself. And, beloved, see, we need to understand this. Unbelief is not just a little thing. It is rejection. It is rejection of God's prophecies, rejections of the types of Christ, and worse, it is the rejection of Christ himself. Now, let's put this together. Remember I mentioned that there's nothing more logical than faith. It's because there's nothing more illogical than lack of faith. By rejecting Jesus, who were they rejecting? I could go through everything Jesus was and said, but I'll I'll just mention a few and reason with me. They were rejecting the one who came and walked on water. Now, I'm I'm begging from all of us, even grown-ups, to think how illogical that is for little children it seems like it would be quite easy. If you hear of a man who walks on water, boys and girls, wouldn't you want to go see him? Wouldn't you want to go see and talk to him? How did you do this? How did it feel? How can you walk on water? Beloved, if that message went through that a man walked on water, wouldn't you think that the leaders, the theologians, the scribes, The presidents of the day, they would have come to the feet of this man and have some kind of conversation with him. Who are you? The very history of that people had to do with water parting so that they could be a people. This man does not need waters to part, he walks on it as if it's a paved road. And they had great prophets like Moses and Elijah and Elisha, they needed waters to part. But not Jesus. He walks right on it. Wouldn't that have commanded the attention of all of Israel? We need to have a conference. We need to speak to this man. There's something about him. We cannot deny. He walked on water. But it's not just water. He created Enough bread and fish to feed 5,000 people. And as if that were not enough, God added a witness to that in a sense in a double way. And in another event, 4,000 plus were fed. And it was a great miracle in the days of the wilderness that manna came every morning except for the Sabbath. And then water from the rock. But Moses had no hand upon that on the daily manna. You could say, well, he had to hit the rock. Yes, but the second time God told him not to hit the rock and water would still come forth. And you could say he needed a staff. No man was there multiplying the manna to feed all the people. But Jesus handles these five loaves and two fish. He thanks God And then somewhere along the line between his parting and filling a basket and handing the basket and as the disciples are going through the multitude getting out of that basket there is bread and fish multiplying by the thousands. Again, wouldn't that have occasioned the second great conference to see who Jesus is? Call all the master builders of Israel. We need to you need to evaluate this man. We need to sit at his feet. And you see, you find people who understood it, who grasped it, and they got their most expensive perfume and they said, I don't care. I don't care if I had ten thousands of these. This man will be anointed. I will kiss his feet because he is the Messiah. We, we've been waiting for him all these years. And some people held them back. No, no, don't spend all that money. No, that's unbelief. Unbelief rejects the Messiah. Beloved, look at the logic that that was found when a woman heard of a king who was wise and who was grand and rich. She went the journey, the queen of Sheba, and she went to visit that king. She had to see him with her eyes. She was wise. That is is called faith. Well, yes, she believed, but she had to go see it And and if you had heard of a King Solomon like this in my whole life, you would wonder, I wish I could spend the money to go and visit this king or that queen. If you hear that someone walks on water, creates bread, and then you hear that he is healing the sick and giving life to the dead, then they put him on a cross. See, beloved, not only is unbelief rejection, it is the most utter foolishness and utter illogical activity of the heart. What else did they reject? Go on further. Number four, they rejected the messengers, of course. You could say now, well, why, why do we need to bring them up? But we need to bring them up because it is part of what reject, they rejected and, and, and because it creates this reality of the, of the great drama of unbelief Beloved, I pray that this impresses upon your heart so that even as you witness to other people, you can, you can plead with them to understand what unbelief is. It is a gigantic monstros- monstrosity. It is not just a small thing. Well, let me add this then. They rejected the messengers of God. And Jesus declared this would happen. If they reject the master, they will reject the servants. The servant is not greater than his Lord, John 15, 18. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, who were they persecuting when they persecuted these messengers? You see, they were persecuting a man, two men, who had just healed A lame man at gate beautiful. You see, you immediately put the the logic element to it. Wouldn't that have been in the interest of these leaders to find a way to deal with the beggars? And what better way than to heal them so that not only we need no longer give our alms to them, but they can also have a blessed life. But they heal that good man. And they are put in prison. Even Peter puts this at their very face when they are asked... Um, in verse seven of chapter four, they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power and by what name have ye done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, "Ye rulers of people, of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, this is what I want to drive across. Unbelief is rejection, and what are they rejecting? They are rejecting men doing good things. And then those apostles are all put in prison and that's why we read in chapter 5 it says that there came in verse 16 also a multitude of them from the cities round about into Jerusalem bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits and they healed everyone and what happens? They're in prison the next day. They get out which means they can keep on doing good they go there and put them back into prison. They are literally saying no, we don't want you doing good. Stop loving the people. Stop helping them. Stop delivering them. See, when unbelief rejects Christ, it rejects also the messengers of Christ. So as the messengers of Christ go out doing good, the unbeliever persecutors who are rejectors, will say, Stop. We don't want good to be done to people. So not only are we learning what unbelief is, I hope you're also shunning what unbelief is. Unbelief is the rejection of the messengers of the Messiah. The messengers who live like the Messiah. And last of all, unbelief is, of course, a rejection of the message of God. Of course, if there is persecuting Christ and persecute the messengers of Christ, in essence, what they're doing is rejecting the whole message, the message Christ bore in His very life, the message the apostles bore in their very hearts and lips. That's what they're rejecting. And beloved, this is where we see in a a final way, putting this all together. It's hard to theological say where you see the folly the greatest. I, I do think it's in rejecting Christ because He's the person. But in all these ways, do you see what's happening? It's making us see greater and greater the rejection and unbelief and so therefore the folly and the illogical nature of it. And especially now as we see a rejection of the message. What is the message they are rejecting? Well, Paul says a little, Peter says a little something of this message. In verse 31, he says, him hath God exalted um, with his right hand to be prince and savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That's the message. And so, Imagine if this is all I had in this sermon and I hadn't talked about the water and walking on it and and, and all those miracles and and if the only message I had is this is what persecution is. These men were proclaiming salvation, forgiveness so that there's hope, so that there's eternal life and what are they doing? They're rejecting that. Now, beloved, do, do you see the tension? Can there be something more foolish than to reject the forgiveness of your own sins. You have a better way to cleanse yourself. We have a message of eternal life. Someone rejects it because you don't want life? We have the message of hope and salvation that we will go to heaven and not hell. But they reject it. Is it because you prefer hell? Or because you don't believe in it? You have a better way for heaven than that one suffered hell for us so that we can go to heaven? Our message is the only message that brings salvation to the hearts of men. It's the only message of joy. The only message of hope. Unbelief rejects all of that. Now the question is why? Why do they reject all these prophecies? Why do they reject the types and figures? Why do they reject God's Messiah and God's messengers? The message itself. Because of unbelief. That's what unbelief is. And we conclude, as I've already said. Unbelief is illogical. It is unreasonable. You have to stop using your mind to continue in unbelief. And beloved, that's why I began the sermon by saying, if this convicts you, and you realize you have no faith, the message is not, don't come to the Lord's Supper. The message is, you must have faith now. You must believe. Because that's the logical. It is the wise thing. It is the loving thing because you're seeing who Christ is and you're saying, I believe. I don't want to be like those master builders who were illogical, who, who were unreasonable and they rejected the stone that was precious. The one that had absolutely no veins and no harm. He is the only one who can sustain the building called the church. They rejected. And if you are a believer until this second, this is what you have to say. I will not reject that stone. I look to Jesus and I've heard through this sermon and I know the stories. I believe He did all those things. I believe He walked on water because He is God. I believe He died on the cross because He is God and man. And He can represent me who am human. And I believe on the cross He bore the sins of all His people and I here ask, Lord, forgive me of all my sins. I need a Savior such as that. I will not be like those builders. I will accept Him and not reject Him. Oh, beloved, that's my prayer. That God would, would breathe in you the life that you need if you are not saved, and that you would have faith because you see there's no other way to respond to this blessed Savior. And lastly, And in conclusion, what is the nature of faith? Well, you see, I I trust you see by now how it helps us learn what faith is. As we've been focusing in the nature of unbelief, we're just going to conclude, while unbelief rejects, faith embraces. Unbelief reproves. Belief approves. We are to be as in the place of those master builders. And now what, what I've placed before you in this sermon is almost like the quarry of Scripture. And you go through the prophecies. You see the types. You see Jesus in His life. And you see that it matches. Those prophecies were, were, were fulfilled by Jesus. And yes, the Lamb of God was, was the one whom... Jo, J, uh, John said that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And we see all of those sacrifices. Those poor little lambs. Were, were, they were little types of Christ. And here's Christ. I believe it. And I believe that Jesus dying on the cross did a lot more than all those animals could ever do. It was not the blood of goats and oxen that Jesus that, that pleases God, but they were just types. they were just figures pointing to Jesus, and, and you are like a master builder, and you look at that stone and you say, "I will approve it." I accept him. Unbelief rejects the message and the messiah faith accepts and praises one and publishes the other. See, we praise the Messiah and we now become messengers ourselves. Even if he or she who carries the message are in danger of death. And then we go to the marks of faith. If you have true faith because you accept Jesus, here you go living your life, you will be the hated one. You will be the one that unbelievers will pursue and even persecute. What do you do? You stop pre- preaching the message. You stop carrying the messenger in your lips. No, not a true Christian. We are ready to die. We are ready to be imprisoned, like the apostles were, because it's a reason. It's, it's unreasonable. It's illogical. I cannot deny my Savior, even if in the peril of my own life. That's what faith does. It gives us the strength when when you need it. The true believer is the rejected one, but that does not make the true believer reject the message. Young boys and girls, you you might have people who may have taunt you or may start taunting you about being a Christian. But see if you truly believe in this Jesus. The moment that happens, you really will have, in a sense, a tinge of joy, saying, "Wow, it happened." They persecuted Jesus. They're persecuting me. I'm identified with my Savior. It won't be a challenge. It won't be a trial. You will only be strengthened by that because you accept the Messiah and His message. True faith accepts the prophecies, the promises, the Messiah, the messengers. It accepts Christ. This is why it's so important for Christians to love Christians. That, that's the one thing that is hard to understand and believe and that's what makes you think maybe a certain person is not a true believer when you hear things like well I'm a Christian and I love God but I can't stand other Christians that doesn't exist in the heart of a true believer because a true believer understands what it means to be hated by those who pursued Christ and we're we're a bunch of people that know what it means to be hated we're not going to hate each other in 1 Peter, that's the whole message. Peter draws a picture, and First Peter summarizes it in two minutes. The whole world is hating outside. The, the church is an island of love inside. And if one Christian dares to be a persecutor inside this island of love, that shows that maybe that heart is actually from the outside. Because in the church of the living God, we are even willing to die for the sake of Christ. Why would we hate another Christian? And while unbelief is illogical and unreasonable, you see, faith is logical, it is reasonable, it is spiritual. I'm not saying by this that we have the power to believe, but I am saying with this that you need your mind to believe. It is a gift of the Spirit. And what God does is he makes us use the gift of our reason to realize this is the Messiah. And I would be foolish not to follow him. Because it's very logical to trust the very creator of the universe. And the one who walked on water. And the one who created bread and fish and raised the dead. And who died, he was buried but he arose from the grave. And you see what Peter is doing when, when he comes to those, apost- to, to those leaders and he says that God has exalted him. And he says in verse 32, and we are his witnesses. See, here's Peter talking to these leaders. And he says to them, we are his witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. You know what Peter is saying? He's saying to the Sadducees and to all those leaders, use your reasonable mind. We are witnesses. We saw Jesus whom you crucified alive. And the Spirit is a witness with us. And you could say, well, of course He could say this. No, but He's not just saying this. People were being healed. People possessed were being delivered. See, the very Sadducees realize there's something powerful about this. They knew it. They knew there was something otherworldly. And Peter is saying, you men are reasonable. Use your minds. Judge rightly. We are witnesses. Believe. And lastly, since unbelief is rejection, and rejection is hatred, belief is acceptance. And acceptance is is love and when you love you're invited when you love you fellowship when you love you commune with others who are loved when you love you partake next Lord's Day we are invited to partake of the Lord's Supper Jesus promises His presence with us spiritually. We hope to remember the Lord's death until He comes. The Lord's Supper was called in the early days a love feast. Because we are expressing love for one another and our love for our Savior. And more than that, He is expressing His love to us. Reminding us that He gave His body and blood to save us. And when we partake, we are renewing as it were our very confession of faith. Because we believe, we love God has made us wise unto salvation. It is not a wisdom of man. We do not have this logic. We've been we've seen here who we are by nature, beloved. Take away God's grace, We are like those Sadducees and elders. Include God's grace. We listen to Peter and we say, Peter, I believe. I pray that that may be your witness and testimony today. By God's grace, let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we are so thankful that even in the midst of those persecutions, thy people were preserved. Lord, we see the miraculous um, deliverance even there, Lord. These men are still speaking to these apostles and don't even ask how they were delivered. They are dumbfounded with the massive proof of the Holy Spirit's power and yet they don't even seem to care because they're rejecting Thee. oh Lord, help us to see That even our hearts who may believe every every tendency to have less faith is really more unbelief. Forgive us, Lord, for every unbelief. Strengthen our faith, Lord, and give faith to the faithless. That Thou would give eyes to have this spiritual logic that we by nature lack. By nature, Lord, we are fools, we are illogical. We are unreasonable. We are unloving. And we reject. But Lord how we thank Thee. That by Thy grace. Thou hast caused us to accept. And embrace. And love. And to reason. And therefore offer our reasonable service to Thee. All Lord. Thanks to Thy sovereign grace and love.